You're listening to the EU China podcast powered by the EU China Hub, straight from Brussels, a show on which we interview important actors in the EU China relations and cover the top EU China news. Our mission is to help you to get a more nuanced picture of what is going on in the EU China relations. My name is Greg Stetz and I'm happy to have you with us. If you like our show, don't forget to subscribe and to tell your friends about us. Let's get started. Hi, here comes the U-China news brief for April 13, 2020. In today's news we cover Chinese FDI in Europe is dwindling, but COVID-19 could reverse that. Toying with the numbers, China's data on COVID-19 questioned. Status check on the 17 plus 1, report by choice. EU bonding at last, but without the bonds. When in deep water, liberalize. China's new reforms. This news brief was produced by Flavian Berniago and Greg Stetz. Enjoy! Chinese FDI in Europe is dwindling, but COVID-19 could reverse that. A report by Merix shows Chinese FDI in Europe has been in decline for the third consecutive year. In 2019, investments dropped to 12 billion euros compared to 29 billion euros in 2017 and 37 billion euros in 2016. These figures are closer to 2012 levels, so that of 10 billion euros. The downward trend from previous years was sustained largely owing to Beijing's administrative barriers on irrational capital outflows and the EU's new regulations on investments. In 2019, Northern Europe was the preferred destination of Chinese FDI and it attracted 53% of the FDI in the year. Consequently, the region surprisingly overtook the big three, so the UK, France and Germany, who dropped to 34% of total investment in 2019, compared to 71% in 2017 and 45% in 2018. Finland and Sweden emerged as the big recipients this year, in large part thanks to the acquisition of Finnish Amer by Anta and the investment by China Evangrade in Swedish NEVS. Geography aside, there were also many other interesting trends. For example, Chinese investments became more concentrated, as 80% of them were focused on consumer products and services, ICT, automotive and financial services. Consumer products and services were particularly successful, attracting 40% of total investment and registering the fourth largest acquisition in the EU since 2000. So the acquisition of the Finnish sporting goods Amer for 4.6 billion euros, which we mentioned before. And despite increased European scrutiny around Chinese investment in tech sectors, ICT remained the sector with the highest percentage of single transactions in 2019, and it came second in terms of volume. Also interestingly, the share of Chinese SOE investment dropped heavily to 11% compared to 41% in 2018 and 72% in 2017, and that is the lowest level of SOE investments since 2000. So primarily Chinese investments in Europe this year were done by private companies. 
But returning to the topic of tech and also research and development, with the regulation of FDI and equity investment by the EU since 2018, Chinese firms have adapted to the new dynamic by investing exponentially more in their own R&D and setting up more R&D partnerships with European entities. Such partnerships were also in the spotlight of Merix's report, which highlighted three types of such partnerships between Chinese and European companies, between Chinese firms and European universities, as well as partnerships related to Chinese firms being involved in projects supported by or involving European governments. An increase of number of such partnerships is at the same time both good and bad news. On the good side, Europe can derive innovation and know-how from China's talent pool and high-tech industrial clusters, and this is significant given that China now outspends Europe in R&D expenditure as a share of GDP. The bad part is that R&D collaboration with China can also be problematic, as it may allow China to tap into important technology that could reduce Europe's economic competitiveness while bolstering China's industrial military complex. But some would say that there is also an ugly face to such cooperation, as human rights concerns loom over the potential for the transfer technologies to be used by China to employ mass social control, such as in Xinjiang. But coming back to the original point, as much as we've seen increase in this kind of R&D cooperation, there has been a downward trend for Chinese investments to Europe. But the economic consequences of the outbreak of COVID-19 in Europe may change this situation. With European developed stock markets in freefall due to the virus, a number of anonymous European bankers reported more requests from Chinese firms for proposals on targets. And many of those potential buyers are Chinese state-owned enterprises. The sectors targeted are strategically important. Automotive, energy, infrastructure and technology. But the European Union and member states seem to be aware of this situation. And following a call by the Commission in March, multiple European countries have taken preventive steps to avoid foreign takeovers during the crisis. For example, Italy has extended the golden power protections to banks, insurers, energy and healthcare. Those golden powers refer to a law adopted in 2019 by the Italian government which allows it to intervene in deals involving companies operating in the sectors of defense, national security, communications, energy and transport. Generally speaking, it gives the Italian government a right to intervene in sensitive sectors on the basis of potential national security threat. Moving on, Spain announced foreign companies wishing to take over 10% of any Spanish company will need the direct blessing of the central government. And on top of that, Spain also moved to protect strategically important companies with big stock devaluations. Germany announced it will provide guaranteed liquidity to troubled companies. German policymakers are keen to keep Daimler and tech companies out of foreign hands. But such moves might not be a trend for all the European member states. For example, last week we reported about Hungary and the government's intention to classify the details of the deal related to Belgrade-Budapest railway done with China, with Chinese Exim Bank. So this doesn't inspire confidence in the fact that the country is going to beef up their response to potential Chinese takeovers. So what are the takeaways here? Is 2019 going to be down and 2020 up for Chinese investments? 
Well, the Chinese investments in Europe did continue to fall in 2019, but COVID-19 may reverse this trend. Chinese SOEs appear to have been quick to attempt to take advantage of the economic chaos that has ensued during the COVID-19 crisis in Europe, and they seem determined to spike their investment. And this makes sense in the context of fraught economic and trade relations with the US. So the EU member states will need to keep vigilant and amp up their regulations on acquisitions if they don't want to mirror the fate of KUKA, the German industrial robot manufacturer acquired by a Chinese home appliances manufacturer Midea in 2016. Another takeaway is that as much as European legislation in 2018 made mergers and acquisitions harder for foreign companies to pursue, this resulted in Chinese companies reorienting to pursue more R&D partnerships. Often overlooked by policymakers, R&D is a highly sensitive area, and working with China means Europe can extract benefits just as much it could just shoot itself in the foot by giving away essential tech. So European regulators may want to keep an eye on it. Toying with the numbers? China's data on COVID-19 questioned. Wuhan's lockdown was officially lifted on April 8, thus pointing to a symbolically important moment in the fight against COVID-19. After 76 days, authorities removed the lockdown and 65,000 people left the city within hours after measures were lifted. But at the time of this symbolic victory, a number of classified reports by US intelligence emerged indicating that the number of cases and deaths is likely much higher than initially reported by Chinese authorities. Also, The Economist run their own analysis, basing on the data from China's National Health Commission, and it showed 15 instances in which the number of new cases jumped by at least 20% within one day. In two-thirds of those instances, they were accompanied by important decisions made by the government, such as Xi Jinping giving an important speech or a local leader getting fired from his post. So such correlation, if it indeed is a cause-effect correlation, would link China's COVID-19 data with the political dynamics of the country, therefore questioning the value of the medical data. And while Chinese authorities themselves may be unaware of the exact number of cases, some proxy studies suggest that the number of deaths in Wuhan could be even twice than that that the WHO reported. And that comes at the time when the WHO is under fire for alleged bias towards China. And that is not the only trouble for WHO, as recently in yet another scandal, WHO chief Tedros Ghebreyesus accused Taiwanese leaders of being racist without providing background context. On April 10th, Taiwanese authorities uncovered a number of fake Twitter accounts tweeting apologies to Ghebreyesus for the alleged racism. And speaking of discrimination and racism, reports emerged of Africans in Guangzhou being evicted from their homes, not being welcomed in the hotels, and being told to leave the country. Many were randomly screened for COVID-19 despite not having left China for months. Chinese authorities did not publicly respond to the alleged xenophobic incidents, but the Global Times, closely linked to the CCP, referred to the accusations as rumors. It appears that as fears of a second outbreak of COVID-19 grow in China, foreigners may be used as potential scapegoats. But generally speaking, referring to the problem of underreporting and all those controversies that emerge over China's handling of COVID-19-related issues, it appears that governments 
including the EU, have increasingly assumed more assertive or hard rhetoric against mainland China and the WHO for their underreporting. A clear example here can be the United Kingdom. On March 29th, Boris Johnson was allegedly extremely furious over China's underreporting, considering a change of stance on Huawei's 5G contribution to the UK. He later tested positive for COVID-19 and was admitted to intensive care. He left hospital on April 12th. On the same day, reports emerged that the UK's MI6 and MI5 urged a quote-unquote China rethink once the COVID-19 crisis passes, and other countries may come to similar conclusions. Nonetheless, as of now, many countries depend on China for the provision of medical supplies, meaning widespread official criticism is still not happening. The tricky dynamic can be exemplified by Angela Merkel's direct phone call with Xi Jinping, which gave Germany direct access to Moeco, a Chinese SOE that manufactures protective equipment of high quality. And such access to high-quality medical supplies seems to be provided in relation to political agreements and direct calls. This is particularly salient given the struggle for quality equipment in many European countries. So when it comes to the takeaways here, first of all, what goes around comes around. So while hard data may never surface, more and more outlets are questioning Beijing's numbers and suggesting that they should be significantly higher. As of now, many countries are still fighting the health crisis and are in need of good quality medical supplies. As the German case exemplifies, these supplies may be available on the basis of direct talks between leaders. However, once normality resumes, a tougher rhetoric on China's mishandling and underreporting is likely to send waves through various levels of EU-China cooperation, as EU governments are now being confronted with a radical and vivid example of dealing with a non-transparent partner. But there is also a people aspect to what is going on. So, in other words, the fact that European leaders and leaders across the globe are also personally affected by the outbreak of COVID-19 that some of them might link with China's underreporting. And in the long run, leaders who were personally affected by the virus may come to reassess their approach towards China. So far, the main national figures involved are Boris Johnson, who went through the intensive care because of COVID-19, and Sophie Trudeau, the wife of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who was in quarantine after contracting the virus. So depending on their personal experiences, European leaders may be inclined to become more hawkish towards China. And while such personal experiences are likely not going to make leaders reassess their strategy or long-term plans towards China, their experiences can certainly affect the diplomatic mood in the room, if you will. Status check on the 17 plus 1, report by the China observers in Central and Eastern Europe. A report released by Choice asserts the 17 plus 1 should not be regarded as an empty shell, despite the trade deficit of CE countries with China, low levels of Chinese FDI in the region, and their reticence to Beijing's political alternative. Recommendations given in the report include greater coordination within the EU and among the 17 CE countries in order to extract economic benefits and avoid politicization of local governments by the CCP. Finally, the authors recommend an ACT policy. A stands for adapt to China's presence in the region, C to counter 
it's influenced by banding together, and T to targeting specific demands. So moving to takeaways. First of all, one of the key messages that is important in the EU context is to appreciate the agency of the CE countries rather than treat them as passive recipients of Chinese, American or other narratives. Most of the CE states don't attach strategic priority to their relation with China, which gives their political elites the space to use China as a tool in pursuing their own domestic or foreign goals. This makes understanding each CE country dynamic with China even more difficult than it is in the case of bigger EU member states that are constrained by their well-established groups of interest, such as national business lobbies. We explored the topic of agency in our recent podcast with Richard Turchani about the Sinocheck fallout. You can find it on our website. But there is another point that we would like to raise in relation to 17 plus 1 and Central and Eastern Europe. A big challenge is the idea of the Central and Eastern Europe itself. As the authors state, China contributed to the conceptualization of the region. But to be fair, the concept is shaky. First, the grouping was selected arbitrarily by China, and you can see our podcast conversation with Bogdan Guralczyk, who was present at the initial announcement of 16 plus 1. Second, the concept of Central and Eastern Europe connects countries with very different interests and identities who are not pursuing dialogues in other frameworks. For example, the interests of Estonia are going to likely be very different from those of Serbia, and the geopolitical outlook from Tallinn is going to be very different from that coming from Belgrade. So developing effective cooperation towards China in the region would require a great deal of political will and energy by leaders of the Central and Eastern European countries, many of which don't treat China as a priority. So maybe focusing on having a stronger voice within the EU's discussion on China policy should come as a priority for CEU members. EU bonding at last, but without the bonds. Following many rounds of negotiations back and forth, EU finance ministers agreed on 540 billion euros aid package at a time of severe health and economic crisis. 240 billion euros are to come from the European security mechanism for Eurozone member states, 200 billion euros are going to come from the European investment banks in form of loans for companies, and 100 billion euros are to be provided by the European Commission through the SURE fund that will hand out unemployment benefits. But already when this financial package was being agreed on April 9th, there was an agreement to set up some sort of recovery fund, which is an acknowledgement that the current package is simply not enough. But importantly, finance ministers did not agree on the very contested corona bonds. So corona bonds are the newest name for an older concept of EU issuing joint bonds. They are seen as a way to mutualize the costs of economic recovery by issuing common debt. The prospect of such common debt sends shivers down the spines of economically conservative member states who fear that they will bear the burden of the South's debt. For example, Italy, debt-to-GDP ratio is 135%. Austria, one of the more financially conservative negotiators, announced through its finance minister that the current package should not be a backdoor towards corona bonds later on. Dutch Minister of Finance took it even a step further, announcing that he, quote, will never be okay with corona bonds, end of quote. 
so the absence of such debt mutualization mechanism will make it difficult for Italian policymakers to get an OK at home for the package. And it seems that the Italian government has cornered itself with the talk at home about corona bonds, pretty much making them the synonym of European solidarity. But even putting aside the domestic support, the aid package does not solve the long-term issue of post-COVID-19 debt accumulation for Italy. Germany, for instance, has long avoided public spending for the sake of fiscal soundness. For Italy, on the other hand, further accumulation of debt will make its borrowing costs skyrocket. So what are the takeaways here? First of all, it's not just about economics anymore. Corona bonds quickly became a synonym for European solidarity. Of course, the Italian economic recovery after the health crisis is a vital topic and its debt needs to be kept in control to ensure that Euro survives. On the other hand, the debate has overstepped the financial realm and is also a debate of sentiments. So now it's very important for the policymakers not to sensationalize technocratic discussions, lest they want Italy 2020 to become a Greece of 2012. But maybe there can be a silver lining in all that, and that is to strike the iron while it's hot. The EU has a tendency for crisis-induced reform, a feat perhaps rooted in its birth from the ashes of the Second World War. But aside from France, few players at the table are seriously thinking nowadays about deeper integration. The European Council discussing the package in the next few days could give further impetus to turn the post-COVID-19 reform into an opportunity for greater integration. This may be a good time to think about the benefits and consequences of a European Common Fiscal Union. When in deep water, liberalize. China's new reforms. The CCP's Central Committee and the State Council released a set of economic guidelines on April 10th as China's economy is gearing up to face some severe hurdles ranging from unemployment to supply chain cuts. According to the proposed measures, different market players will be granted equal access and efficiency will be targeted through market reform of rules, pricing and competition. While the guidelines do not grant land ownership in rural areas, they relax restrictions on land trading. Importantly, the reforms also promise to liberalize the HUKO, so the household registration system dating back to 1958 and Maoist era. HUKO relates Chinese nationals to the administrative unit where their families are from in terms of public services and right of residence. So this is big news for China's numerous domestic migrants. A document released by the National Development and Reform Commission said that cities with a population of under 3 million should remove barriers for rural residents to apply for urban household registration status. For cities with a population of over 3 million, restrictions will be eased for groups such as migrant workers with stable jobs and college students from rural areas. For example, until now, migrant workers in Shanghai could obtain a Shanghai hukou only after seven years of residing there. Under the reform, the time they had spent in cities surrounding Shanghai will be counted towards those seven years. According to estimations, the liberalization of domestic migration could add 14 trillion US dollars to China's economy. And while this may seem like a decision taken in the context of COVID-19, it has slightly longer roots. 
According to Trivium China, all these reforms had been known since November 2019, when they were approved by the Central Commission for comprehensively deepening reforms. In any case, the COVID-19 crisis provided an impetus to Chinese policymakers to push further the reforms that were previously proposed. For example, one of the challenges are the potential supply chain cuts. To give you an example, just last week, Japan announced it will dedicate 2 billion US dollars of its stimulus package to help Japanese companies move away from China. In Europe, a poll by ViaVoice found that 84% of respondents favor a relocation of supply chains from Asia to Europe. So what are the takeaways here? Should we get excited? Well, it does seem that China may use the crisis to run important liberalization reforms. And this would be in line with the calls of the President of the European Union Chamber of Commerce, Jörg Wöttke, not to waste the crisis, which we alluded to in the last news brief. But a problem with such pronouncements from China is that the gap between the declaration and the actual implementation is quite large. So let's wait a bit and see how the actual implementation progresses. And that's it for this week's news brief. Thank you very much for listening and see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the EU China podcast. If you want to know more or to get in touch with us, visit our website, which is euchinahubwrittenjointly.com. And if you find this show insightful, be sure to leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It will help others to get to know about us. See you next time.